Hi pedestrians, welcome to Founders University. My name's Chris Varasinha and I'm a co-founder of Pedestrian.tv. Founders Uni is a geeky, in-depth chat with some of our favorite Aussie startup legends. But first, a word from our sponsor. The thing I love about Squarespace is just how simple it is to use. To prove it, I've personally jumped on there and created a website for this podcast. If you want to see what I created on Squarespace with no technical skills whatsoever, head over to foundersuni.com. And with the offer code PTV, you get 10% off your first purchase at squarespace.com. So what are you waiting for? Taryn Williams took her learnings as a model to build a better agency with the launch of Wink Models. After growing Wink to 650 talent with millions in revenue, she stepped away to disrupt the entire influencer and talent industry with a technology platform called The Right Fit. Taryn's a force of nature who's one of the most prominent voices in the Aussie startup community, and we're pumped to present this in-depth conversation that goes deep on everything from how to build a two-sided marketplace to raising investment from one of Australia's top VC firms. So, okay, so this is really embarrassing, but Taryn or Taryn? I I answered anything. So good to have you. Like, um, you've you've actually been kind of one of my favorite sort of like startup founders to kind of personally connect with, you know, over the last couple of years. I hope it's an illustrious list that I'm on. Oh, 100%. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, yeah, so first of all, for people who potentially say don't know what it is that you do, can you give us the elevator pitch? Yes. So, um, I'm the founder and CEO of The Right Fit, which is a two sided marketplace for creative talent. So, we have everything from photographers, hair and makeup artists, influencers, stylists, videographers, pretty much anything that you would need to bring a creative campaign to life, whether it's online content or a TVC or a print campaign. Cool. So we would have we have lots of creatives in the pedestrian audience. Um, can you talk to us about, I guess, like what's in it for them? Like why should they sign up to this platform? Yeah. So what we were finding is with the advent of social media, lots of people wanted to build their own brand online. So it was much easier to build your own website and it was much easier to build a social presence and find direct bookings. But there was a lot of complications with that and creatives weren't getting paid on time. They weren't necessarily great at admin of raising invoices and chasing payments and things like that. So what I wanted to build was a really safe two-sided marketplace for creatives that was really beneficial for both clients and talent. So in our model, a talent can build a profile on our platform. It's completely free to set up a platform. They can upload all their photos, all their experience, their show reels and things like that. And then when they see a job that they like that's suitable for them on the platform, they can submit themselves for it. And then we handle all of the hassle and the paperwork. So they get paid automatically 48 hours after the job. And we deal with all the invoicing and your public liability insurance and personal property damage and all the stuff that creatives don't like dealing with. Cool. So... And, and this is your second business it is, that you've run. Yes. Um, can you maybe just talk us through how you first got started on your sort of entrepreneurial journey and how that led you to start your first business? Of course. Yeah, people always ask if entrepreneurs are born or made, and I, like, I can't give you a definitive answer on that, but I do think my journey was probably a little bit unconventional from the start. So I, for, like, for example, I learned how to fly a plane when I was 15 before I could drive a car. And my parents will tell you I've always been really, like, stubborn and always wanted to do things differently in my own way. I dropped out of uni two weeks shy of graduating because I wanted to move to Korea to model. So there was just some random things, I suppose, in my upbringing. And my parents were always pretty understanding and let me have a bit of a free reign to try those things. So I started my first Business Wink Models when I was 21. And I'd worked both as a model and as a producer. And I could sort of see the pain points for both sides of the industry. So... 
talent really didn't have great relationships with their agents and they weren't getting paid on time and there was sort of this rule by fear uh, mentality for talent. And then on the client side, they didn't have great relationships with the agents either and they couldn't get access and transparency necessarily to all of the talent that were available for jobs. And I thought, really, it's not that difficult. Blissful naivety of youth at 21, I thought, right, I'm going to start my own agency and called it Wink because I wanted it to be all about like a natural referral process so that you were referred to us by someone and it was supposed to say really nice and small. Um, so we launched with about 30 models um, just in Sydney and our first campaign that we shot was for Nokia flip phones back in the day that they were like the cool thing to have Um, and that really sort of kicks out of the business so we carved out a great niche being focused on commercial talent so really diverse range of looks and ages and ethnicities that was really becoming popular in advertising sort of 10 or 11 years ago when we were moving away from that I suppose stereo cast blonde blue-eyed um, commercial model into a much more representative um, depiction of Australian societies. So we were kind of at the right place at the right time. Um, and the agency's now got 650 models Australia-wide. Wow. Yeah, offices in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. And um, my amazing business partner and managing director, Sage, runs the business and makes all the magic happen on a day-to-day basis. So what were the challenges starting a business when you were just 21? Definitely people taking you seriously at that age. I was pretty lucky that I'd worked in the industry for a long time myself, so I was pretty respected as a producer. I'd obviously worked for a number of years as a model, so I did have a great little back book of contacts, and people sort of understood my work ethic, and they really bought into what we were you know, trying to achieve, which was making a better industry that would both benefit both parties. So I was quite lucky in that sense, um, but obviously just all the challenges that you have not ever having founded a company before, so not knowing all the things that you don't know, that you don't need, that you need public liability insurance and all of these things there's not like a book that you can go and buy off the off the shelf that answers all of those for you so and then obviously building and scaling a team I think everyone will tell you is the hardest thing finding great people and the right people at the right time in your journey is was definitely one of the biggest challenges for me so can we try to go back to that point where you said you don't know what you don't know mm. and you mentioned public liability insurance um, I imagine there will be some people listening to this who are you know, maybe about to jump into that journey or at that point where they're kind of starting to find out some of the stuff they don't know. Can you remember some of the specific things where you were just like, ah, oh, and yeah, yeah. drops? Yeah. Yeah. I think just basic things like getting access to the right phone plans. Like there's amazing VoIP phones and things that you can use now. So you don't have to have an office. You can get things redirected. Or if you are out on the road, you know, you can get them redirected from the office. Getting a great accountant from day one. I had personally had set the company up in a trust, which everyone tells you, yes, definitely set, set your business up in a trust, but not inside a proprietary limited inside a trust. And then trust can't claim R&D grants. So I had to do a massive restructure about four years ago, which was really costly, really, really time consuming. So just getting great accounting advice from day one to make sure that everything's structured as it should be. And also just making sure that you're aware of all the grants, like things like R&D grants and um, Oh, what else? There's so many now. Um, EMD, G grants. There's so many things that you can get access to. Um, commercialization grants for startups. So, just someone that can give you that advice and say, "Hey, like," and a great lawyer, a great HR lawyer, especially as you start hiring people and being aware of all those things. But the fantastic thing is now there's such a great startup community. Like startups and entrepreneurs weren't a thing like 11 years ago when I started a business. It was just like 
you were just starting a business. Like this, it was not a cool or awesome thing to do. And now there's so many great like meetups or podcasts like this that you can you know get access to so much information and almost like a checklist of, of what you do need to do before you get started. Yeah, cool. Do you know, do you know if there's like a specific resource or organisation that manages all of the R and D, the export market development grant, grant and yeah. the um, the commercialization incentives yeah i know that pwc have got um a new for nifty forms um where you can do a lot of it online yourself to remove a lot of the i I know they launched to try and remove the high costs especially for startups you know who don't have necessarily a lot of money to go and spend thousands of dollars doing an r&d grant so there's lots of great ones like that i would also recommend checking out the um australian institute of company directors just to really understand like your liabilities as a company it'll scare everyone i don't know if you can swear on this podcast but um, no, no, you can go ahead yeah. <laughs> yeah we'll totally scare the shit out of you when you read it and you're like oh my god i'm going to be personally liable for like everything in this company um but totally worth reading and understanding like the importance and and the seriousness of what you're taking on nice uh so wink like was it a kind of was it a success from day one like you know when you obviously you can start to sort of set up a business but then uh, in terms of clients, like, you know, mm. were they kind of booking your models? Like, did you have to kind of hustle? Was it... There was definitely hustle. And I look back on it now, like, launching my second business, and you think back on those days, I was like, oh, my gosh. I remember, like, vividly sitting up until, like, midnight, Googling and doing, like, the first 20 pages of Google of, like, photographers in Sydney and emailing them and introducing myself and setting up meetings and just the things that you do, like, the hustle that you go through and cold calling people and, you know, getting out there and getting to every event and networking and marketing yourself. So, yeah, there was definitely a lot of hustle. And I think I look back on that and think, God, I'm so glad that I was so young because I had so much energy and and um, and naivety. You don't know what's not going to work. So you're willing to try everything. So, yeah, a lot of hustle. And then it grew really organically. And we were really lucky in that we had fantastic relationships with our clients. So almost all of our work in those first probably three or four years came from referrals and word of mouth. So we've re- built up a great community on both sides of the marketplace in that business. So our talent were obviously finally getting treated the way that they wanted and getting paid on time. And you know, with that came a lot of referrals from them as well. Yeah, cool. And so like, are there challenges in scaling a modeling agency business? Absolutely. So it's actually how I got involved in technology. So when that business got to about... 500 models um, you can imagine like the, the amount of admin that goes in organising castings for you know hundreds of different people on a day to day basis and no one has a set hourly rate that they work at it all depends on each different job and is there overtime and then matching invoices to the correct clients and remembering that that particular client doesn't like people with tattoos or whatever like it's so much to keep a track of and it was all done manually there's nothing in our industry there was no piece of you know technology or platform that allowed us to manage all of that and so Every time a booker left the company, we would lose all of that ingrained knowledge. And um, same for a client. If a client came to, had changeover on their side and they'd come to us and say, who are the models that we usually use? We'd say, oh, God, we'd have to dig back through manual emails. So started out with um, a really small idea of building a two-way SMS platform to allow us to check availability for talent and then be able to see who was available and send that shortlist to a client simple, right? Yeah. And um, and then it sort of grew into this, okay, well, what if we could check who was available and then schedule them for their castings and then automatically book in the successful applicant for their shoot 
and then check if there was any overtime on the shoot and then automatically invoice the client. And then we ended up building this end-to-end onboarding calendar management and payroll integration software. So it took about 18 months, but it completely transformed that business. And it meant that we could scale up without having to add any additional headcount and also just completely removed all of the key man dependency and the opportunities for human error. So that platform is complete custom build. Um, and it meant I got to spec out every single tiny little thing that I wanted. So the ability to sort by different driver's license or who has their ears pierced and like the most bizarre random things in the true nature of someone who had never built a product before I wanted all of the things and I definitely didn't start with an MVP so yeah yeah cool uh, so and just MVP for people who don't oh, know minimum viable product yeah uh, and um, so I'm interested. So that that pro- platform you were talking about, is that what then became the right fit or is that just an internal That's just an internal product, used? yeah. So, But during that process of building that platform, because it took about 18 months, it was while all of these changes were occurring in our industry that you would see on a day-to-day basis. So this move to like smaller bits of snackable digital content that brands needed to produce on a daily basis for all of their social channels and online content and then this shift away from these big spend TVCs and print campaigns towards, you know, online content and then the advent of the social media influencer. So we had all of these people who weren't traditional talent being booked for campaigns and coming to us for representation. And we were kind of saying, well, you don't fit in any of our buckets. And then we had clients coming to us with campaigns that weren't financially viable because they lived online for such a short period of time. Um, And so we were like, oh, how can we're turning away work and we're turning away talent if we could build a platform that made this financially viable for both parties and make it safe and secure so talent knew that they were going to get paid and clients didn't have to chase up creatives for invoices and if we could handle the insurance. I was like, there's something in this. And I thought, okay, if we could, in an ideal world, have used the existing platform that we had just built um, and opened it up to clients. I was like, there's a real idea here. So that was where the the very first idea for the right fit came from. And, um, And then I sort of now, now knowing that I had to build an MVP and, and wireframe everything from the start instead of just going out and building things, sat down and sort of mapped it out and went, okay, well, this is actually applicable to so much more of the creative community. And what if we could add photographers and hair and makeup artists and videographers as well so clients could find all of the things that they needed for their campaigns in an online marketplace? So that was where the initial idea started and um, took a lot of key learnings from the first build, but complete start again and, and rebuild. So... Yeah, cool. Yeah. So did you have business partners in Wink Models? No, no. So I'd never had a business partner. And um, it was, yeah, I mean, I think I definitely look at people who have business partners and I go, oh, that would be so nice to share like 50% of the load with and have someone to, to carry and help you carry those big rocks uphill. So no, I didn't. And um, yeah, I think it's a double-edged sword. I mean, you have to find someone with the same vision and drive and finding someone who's really aligned on what success looks like. I think that's okay. Even when you take investors, it's what I so strongly um, recommend to people when they're looking for investment is sitting down and going, okay, well, what does success look like? Are we looking to be a global international company or are we just going to be a Sydney-based you know, platform? And making sure you really like see eye to eye on that. And I think that's really hard. Yeah, cool. So uh, has that changed when, when, when you went sort of, I'm going to go all in on the right fit and like, how are you managing kind of you know, a startup as well as this yeah, is an established, of, you know, established business. business. Yeah, so it was. Um, I was so lucky that I have an incredible team at Wink, and um, when we raise venture capital for the right fit, part of the that deal was that I obviously need to go and work full time in this business and and step aside from my existing business. So. 
Thankfully, I do have an amazing um, business partner now, Sage, in, in the right in Wink Models, and um, I was able to say to her, "Hey, look, you know, there's an amazing opportunity for you here. I would absolutely love you to run this company." She's been with me for over five years, and um, and I sort of said, "Look, you know, I would love for you to be a partner in this." and put aside an equity stake for her and said, you know, this is sort of your baby. I got to go do this other thing. So, you know, catch, it's yours. And um, she was amazing. She really sort of caught the ball and, and kept running with it and just really makes the the wheels turn. And um, yeah, it taught me a lot about, you know, actually not indispensable in a business. Like I really did think that how will the business go on without me? And and they're just fine. So, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so was that almost like an audition process? Like finding someone who would then become a business partner of a business that was already successful? No, established. it was something I hadn't really thought about, like any sort of, and I probably should have, any sort of succession planning and, and what I was going to do. And I get, I wasn't at an age where I was thinking about retiring. or So I think I naively thought that I could run both concurrently without realising how much you know, effort and time and, and energy and, and money um, growing a two-sided marketplace takes. So um, definitely just complete naivety in, in not thinking about it, but happening to have someone who in the business that I absolutely trust and um, and really had all of the skills and had more than proof. She'd run my Melbourne division first and then taken over as managing director. And so she was just incredible and it was really lucky to have someone there that really deeply understood both sides, you know, our client and our talent needs. Yeah, awesome. And so one thing I really wanted to dive into um, with you was, you. so you raised $700,000, I think it was, with 775, Airtree. 775, yeah. 775 with, um, with Airtree Ventures. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk us through that process? Like, mm. how did that start? Like, you know, when you were first canvassing people for investment, yeah. did you instantly go to kind of venture capitalists or did you start with kind of like other people in your network? No. So I funded the first um, probably, gosh, how long, six months, maybe longer. So all of the initial first build myself and all of our our first three employees. Um, Thankfully, obviously, I had an existing profitable business that could do that, but not forever. And at some point they were going to get the shits with me, you know, saying, I just need some more money to pay all these other people's salaries. Um, so I, it actually came about in a really interesting way. So I knew, um, I obviously am quite heavily involved in the startup scene and I knew quite a few venture capitalists and people around the traps. And I'd actually gone to see the guys at Airtree to talk about some of the common pain points in two-sided marketplaces and sort of flesh out with them what had they seen in previous two-sided, they industry experts in marketplaces. So what have they seen before? What are the com- common themes? What are the important KPIs? What are some of the levers that you can work with and then I'd come back probably maybe God, can't be six months later but somewhere around that sort of time point and went well look you know sort of just launched this company and I'm also trying to run this existing business and I do you know all of these speaking engagements and on these other boards as well like how what advice do you give to people that are going through this at what point do you say to someone like quit your full-time job which is you know officially sort of what I was doing and um and go and run your startup like when does it stop being a side hustle and um, they were really fantastic and really supportive and just said, you know, I think this is a really great idea and I think that you should really, you know, throw yourself into it and I think it's got immense, you know, potential and um, you should go out and start looking at 
raising capital. And I was like, oh my gosh, I hadn't even thought about, you know, I was juggling enough things, let alone sort of raising capital. So, and I'd obviously never been through that and didn't know how the process worked. And thankfully I have an amazing mentor who really helped um, and sort of gave me a quick um, quick learning lesson on on what to think about. So it sort of started there. And um, and so we really spoke to them and they were really fantastic from day one. And, and I was pretty clear about what I wanted and what success looked like and, and the kind of people that we wanted around the table. And then as part of that round, we brought in strategic investors as well because it was really important to me. It wasn't so much about raising cash, well, that's always nice to have. Um, it was about having people who could really help us grow the business and bought domain expertise or some sort of additional value add to the table, not just sort of capital. So we really sat down and mapped out what our dream team would look like, who, if we could have like anyone in the world, would be like the best investors to have and whether they would be on the demand side of our marketplace or add some sort of value in another way, wrote them out and then went and spoke to them and said, okay, this is what we're doing. Um, You know, we've got our um, lead investor and and this is what the round looks like. Would you be interested in participating? And then sort of gathered people around that. So yeah, it was, um, it's definitely like not an easy process and it's really, really time consuming. And I I think especially if you're, if you're really clear on what you want, um, then it's easier to find the right people that are aligned with that. Um, but yeah, I think I definitely feel the pain for all those people who are out there raising capital because it's definitely not an easy process. Yeah, cool. So you had a bit of a relationship with Adtree mm-hmm. beforehand, but did you still have to go through a formal process? Like, did you have to put yeah. together a deck? Like, oh yeah, absolutely, deck? absolutely. Yeah, no, I wish it was just a walk in a park and they said like, "Here's some money." No, <laughs> um, no, definitely, we went through like a full proper DD process, and and it's a really, I think it's a really important thing um, for any founder to go through, even if you don't end up raising capital, is just to understand and get all your ducks in a row and go, okay, well, what are our projections in 18, 24 months time? Um, you know, what is our headcount going to look like? Have we got all of those important things like public liability insurance and indemnity insurances and whatever. Have you got all of the right employment contracts for all of your team? So it's a really great, robust process to go through. I'm sure there's a checklist online of like what to include in a data room or um, what what you need to think for, think about for um, a DD process. And um, yeah, so definitely went through all of that. And yeah, I think it's something we kind of do it now on a 12 monthly basis and just go back and review all of our documents and make sure that everything's sort of up to date and it's very boring, but needs to be done. Yeah, cool. And so, DD for the uninitiated was due diligence, due diligence right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, so what you talked about kind of bringing on, like you had sort of the lead investor, and then you brought on strategic investors. Yeah. Can you sort of like talk through any of them, or is that all sort of top secret? Uh, yeah, I mean, I won't name names, yeah. but um, yeah. So we sat down and went, okay, well, who would really help? Like, who has skill sets that would be aligned, you know, with helping us grow the business, or who would be a potential customer that would add value? And also, it needed to make sense. It needed to be mutually beneficial. So if they're going to invest in us, ideally, it's people who would already be spending money with us or utilizing the service in some way or helping us expand. So international investors was one of the parties that we took on. Um, others were major media groups and communications companies and CEOs of media and communication companies and um, people with deep domain expertise and technology. So just really value add people so that I know when I need to pick up the phone and solve a particular problem or get access to something, I know who to call and obviously they have a vested interest in seeing us succeed. Yeah, nice. Uh, and um, and how does, how does it change? Like going from, I suppose, Wink, which you kind of started up yourself, mm. you bootstrapped, it was, you know, kind of like a profitable business 
I imagine, almost yeah. from day one, it yeah. probably had to be. Uh, and um, to then go into a business where you've got investors, you've got all these other sort of stakeholders, like what what's that process and how, how does it compare to just doing it on your yeah, own? Yeah, c- two completely different beasts. One's definitely a lifestyle business and grew really organically and always been really profitable. And as we grew, we added more staff and got bigger offices and, you know, expanded into different states. And it was definitely, um, you know, that business is nearly over 10 years old, nearly 11 years old. So, you know, a beautiful, profitable, but a business that I got to make all the decisions in from day one. Um, And, you know, if you don't hit your targets for that month, you know, there's no sort of real ramifications except you don't pay yourself any more money. Like, you know, so um, whereas obviously when you sit down and you take venture capital or any kind of external investment, you really map out what success is going to look like for sort of 12 months and you have pretty key granular targets that you need to hit and that's what you've gone out you know you've sold the dream to people and said these are all the amazing things that we're going to do and then you need to hold yourself accountable to that so it was a completely different business I mean we had best in breed staff from day one um, which is you know obviously not cheap especially when you're talking developers and product managers and things like that so going out and, and building a team when you you know we were two months old so you know and and trying to set metrics for a business that's two months old that you don't have any data you know you're just kind of running blind and trying to figure things out on the go um yeah it was definitely tough um so i'm i would definitely recommend raising capital um when you're ready and when you sort of have a clear idea we definitely were trying to run before we could walk and um and we were i was not lucky but um we we actually hit, you know, all of our targets, which was great, but probably by, um, you know, nothing more than a little bit of luck and, and a lot of hard work um, because, you know, you've re- you're running completely blind. You don't know how many widgets you're going to sell in the first month or the first three months. You're just kind of trying to guess based on a little bit of historical analysis. And, yeah, so um, it's tough. It's, it's definitely tough and it's definitely a completely different business. Um, we have really high growth targets. Um, we've got, you know, big, big, um, I suppose, expectations on us and of us, um, which is really exciting. Like, I didn't want another lifestyle business, and I could see that there was a massive market opportunity for the right fit. And so we could have continued to grow organically and self-fund, which was, you know, obviously one path, or we could take external investment, and it really just gave us the opportunity to attack the market really, really quickly and grow much, much quicker with the right people around us sort of from day one. Yeah, cool. And so... I mean, you know, for someone out there who is trying to say, like, raise money for a business, Mm. what is, like, what should they be asking for? Like, should they go out and say, this is how much money I need and this is how much, is is it like Shark Tank? Is that (laughs) that what it's like? Like, do they go, this is the percentage and this is the valuation and... Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, people ask this all the time. I'm like, you need to have a really robust financial model. So you need to understand, like, what your projections are going to be and what the size of the market is. And then you need to work backwards from that and go, okay, well, if I need to buy 18 or 24 months runway, I need half a million bucks or a million bucks. So therefore, who will be willing to invest in me? And generally, you don't get to set the price. I mean, it will be what the market will bear or how interested people are. Um, And making sure that you've got all of those things in hand before you go out and start having conversations with people. I think it's really important to build relationships too. Like I don't think you can just sort of show up for a first meeting and be like, "This is I need money. Please give me all of your money now. I think you need to do the legwork. And it's really important because it's a marriage. Like you, it's actually worse than marriage because you like literally can't break up with each other. Like you are together for life. So you really need to get to know them. So build those relationships over time and go and have coffees and get to know them, you know, whether they're angel investors or VC or private equity. 
build those relationships so you can see, is this someone that I could work with on a you know, daily, weekly, monthly basis? Are they going to be people who add value to my company? You know, what do I want them to do? How active do I want my investors to be? Do I want them to just be, you know, not active at all and, and someone that I just send a half yearly update to every now and then? Or or is it someone that I really want helping me grow the company and, and you know, bringing some skills to the table? So I think thinking about all of those things before you start going and reaching out to people and then I think looking at what their portfolio looks like and understanding, you know, if they only do ag tech in your, you know, fashion, then maybe not right for you. And then ask for introductions and don't be afraid to, you know, that's that's their job is is looking at deal flow and, and um, getting to know founders and seeing what opportunities are out there. So don't be afraid to sort of send in your, send in your deck and, um, you know, and be prepared to go in and have a coffee and have a chat and get to know them. Yeah, cool. So for the next one, two-sided question, two question. First of all, can you define a two-sided marketplace? Because it's a term that gets used a lot. You know, a lot of successful mm. startups uh, essentially, you know, kind of do that as a service in some sort of industry or market. Yeah. Uh, and then secondly, you mentioned that as part of the process of sort of talking to Airtree, you were kind of getting their learning, learnings. You would personally have tons of learnings now about like what some of those levers are to kind of mm. make one of those successful. Um, so can you define one and then tell us your tips and tricks on how to build a successful <laughs> two-sided marketplace. Can we call a friend? Is there anyone there? <laughs> yeah. um, so I think obviously essentially you have in a two-sided marketplace you'll have demand side and then you'll have supply side. So demand in our industry will be um, advertisers or brands directly or PR agencies or production companies who are looking to book talent and then our supply side is our talent. So in another marketplace um, it might be people who need cleaners and then the cleaners themselves. So what you're trying to do is match the most suitable candidates. Um, So obviously like in a seek model, you're trying to match job seekers with jobs or pedestrian model. So um, what you want to do is try and match the most suitable candidates in the right geolocations at the right time. So to do that, you need the right liquidity point. So you need to have the right number of supply on the supply side and then the right amount of demand on the demand side. And the, the tricky part in marketplaces is growing them both at the same time. So you don't want a lot of supply side, so talent or job seekers or cleaners sitting there not getting any work and feeling dissatisfied with your offering, and then you don't want a lot of demand side who are trying to find the things that they need but not being able to get access to them. So that's the trick with marketplaces, is trying to grow both and growing each region at the same time. So obviously if you're going to launch in Perth, then you need to make sure that you've got demand and supply at the same time in in each location. And some are really hyper-local, like you would look at um, Uber or someone like that, and they, they need to be down to sort of granular suburbs and things to make sure that they've got the right supply. So um, the the key drivers, I mean, it's really about, I think most businesses probably, or online businesses have a lot of the same key drivers. So understanding the lifetime value of a customer, how much that customer is going to spend with us over their lifetime, um, what their, the different life cycles might look like. Obviously, a PR agency is going to be different to a brand direct is going to be different to a production company. So understanding what your different users are and what the different case scenarios are because they're going to have different lifetime values and then how much it's going to cost us to acquire them. So can we continue to go out and buy customers if they cost us X much money to acquire? Then is it going to actually be viable if we can keep pouring leads into the top of the funnel? How many of those are going to convert and how many of them are going to post jobs and then book talent and then we're actually going to make us a viable business on the back of? So it's understanding some of those key drivers. In our business, there's a whole number of like really nuanced things as well, like the number of talent that are booked per job and then the 
number of bookings per client, um, number of repeat bookings per client. So as you get more and more data, I mean, you can just dig into it for days, and which I love is kind of you, you, you get more and more as you as the company grows and you can start to see pen, um, patterns and trends in, in the data and, and try to extrapolate, you know, where things are going to go, your average job size or your cart size in some businesses. So, yeah. Would you say that, like... Most marketplaces have sort of one side of the equation that is a little less, like has a bit less friction than the other one. Like, I mean, I imagine for you guys, supply probably isn't that hard of like kind of talent, Talent, but obviously you'd have booking the jobs is where the challenge lies. Yeah. Yeah. I think in our marketplace, um, changing a very traditional mindset of how talent are booked um, is definitely difficult, especially for people who have always done it a particular way and it's always been quite a painful and cumbersome process to have them understand that it really can be as easy as booking a flight online to find your talent. Average turnaround time is about 15 minutes so they're like how can I possibly find a makeup artist or a model in 15 minutes like that's just impossible. So changing that mindset and as consumers become more and more savvy with using platforms like Uber and Airtasker and things like that um, it's definitely you know an industry that was ripe for disruption because of that. Um, so I think that's definitely yeah the pain point for us is just changing a traditional mindset and having people understand we're really a market network. So we don't just have supply and demand. We sort of service all the back-end SaaS functionality for them as well. So we deal with all the contracts and usages and public liability insurance. And there's an internal chat platform where they can upload call sheets and files and um, share documents and things like that. So it's kind of the stickiness of, of a market network as well as a transactional marketplace. So helping them understand, I guess, all of the different features and functionalities um, yeah, as it is a challenge as well. Stay tuned after the break for how Taryn manages developers as a non-technical founder and the game-changing tools that she implemented into her business to accelerate growth. If you want to know how simple it is to build a website on Squarespace, it's time to listen up. I jumped onto Squarespace and bought the domain foundersuni.com. I then chose a website template that worked for our podcast, picked the functionality we needed, typed in the copy and uploaded my images. From there, you simply select your plan and publish. If you're looking to take your creative project to the next level, simply use the offer code PTV to get 10% off your first purchase at squarespace.com. You're not personally kind of, I suppose, a technical founder. No. So, you know, but you're kind of tackling something that requires a lot of tech to kind of fix. Um, Yeah. How have you kind of managed that process, specifically, I, I suppose, when it comes to, like, finding the right technical people to kind of actually build products, and then how do you kind of evaluate whether or not they're doing a good job? Yeah. I still joke that I walk past like our dev team's desks and they could like be just typing ones and zeros all day and I wouldn't know. Um, no, I think it's about hiring really, really good people, which is hard. I mean, it's super hard to find great developers. You would know that. And finding people who are the right cultural fit. And then also it's really important to me that they love our customer. And that's, you know, that's I'm asking a lot. You know, <laughs> they need to be great developers and love our customer and be a good cultural fit for my team. So it's super, super hard, um, and we just spend a lot of time recruiting and trying to find the right people. So I'm really lucky that my um, mentor is a CIO, CTO, so deeply um, experienced in that field, and I'm really, really good at asking for help. Also, I will be the first person to put my hand up and ask for help. I'll hit up a complete stranger on LinkedIn and say, hey, I'm trying to solve this particular problem. 
I need to understand what the best payment gateway is for our platform. What's the difference between Stripe, Braintree and PayPal? Why would I choose one over the other? What are the key benefits? And really picking people's brains and sitting down and asking for advice. And I think that's really important if you're not well, if you're not a technical founder or if you're a technical founder without deep domain expertise is to really, you know, understand your limitations and go, I know what I don't know. Someone help me with this. And then I guess taking all that advice with a grain of salt and sitting down and looking at, okay, well, what's going to be the best solution for my company? Um, And looking holistically, like, you know, when we choose different um, software um, that we're going to integrate with or whatever, looking at, okay, well, if I choose this particular um, code or front end, you know, then is that going to be something that I'm going to be able to easily get access to resources for? Is it is there going to be enough supply in, in the jobs market here for that type of developer? So just thinking, I guess, bigger picture about not just picking it because someone told you, oh, you should use Ruby on Rails or whatever it is, that sitting down and going, okay, well, what are the implications of that? Am I going to be able to get developers that can code in that? Is it going to scale the way I'm picturing my business scaling? Um, does it have all of the plugins that I need or whatever? So, yeah. Yeah, cool. It's not easy. So how did you first find and connect with your mentor? Actually through a, well, it was through not a cold connection, but um, a connection who was a CEO um, of a company. And I actually asked him that specific question. So I'd said, hey, look, I need to solve this payment gateway problem. I know you guys are a massive online retailer. Um, I need, I don't know whether I should go with Stripe or Braintree. We're down to two, these two front runners. What do you use? Because surely if anyone in the country has done all the research, it must be you guys. Tell me what you use and tell me why you went with them. Was there any key differentiators that really jumped out at you? And he was great and said, look, I honestly don't know, but my CIO will be the best person to give you that advice. And I'm more than happy to connect you and um, and go from there. So that's how we first connected. Um, and he just really passionately understood the problem that I was trying to solve. And I have like a great sounding board of sort of an informal advisors and mentors um, that I try and speak to on a really regular basis because it's so it can be super isolating being a founder and an entrepreneur. And there's only so much that you can onload on your staff or, you know, so having an independent sort of advisory board that you can go to and say, hey, you know, you're really experienced in this particular area in content marketing or SEM or whatever it might be. And could you give me some advice and how would you handle this problem? Um, I think is super important. And it just gives you that time to step out and I guess look at the business with a fresh set of eyes because you're so you can be so deep in the weeds solving some sort of customer service problem or whatever that it's um, important to I get that helicopter approach I guess. Yeah nice so can you give us an idea of the scale at which like the ride fits operating at the Mm. moment like yeah so we've got about six and a half thousand talent Australia wide Um, so it's in just over 12 months Um, we get about 250 applicants a day to join the marketplace which is pretty crazy um, and then about four and a half thousand clients um, as well so probably just over that now so yeah it's pretty crazy um, so it does take a, a pretty big team to, to make all the magic happen behind the scenes and um, we're just about to expand into new markets so we'll, we're already doing bookings in Singapore and Indonesia um, so we'll formalize a sort of on the ground presence out of Singapore next year and then looking into London and New York um, probably quarter four next year so yeah nice yeah. so what made you choose Singapore and Indonesia as the first markets to kind of expand into we actually just started getting bookings completely organically from those markets so we were sort of letting the market decide where we launch next um, obviously Singapore for an APAC base makes a lot of sense for a lot of reasons a lot of 
they're really, really fantastic at trying to bring um, Aussie companies and, and entrepreneurs and founders to, to launch there. There's obviously some great tax reasons to go to Singapore as well. But from a commercial point of view, for us, all of the regional head offices are located in Singapore. So, And out of Singapore, a lot of regional campaigns are shot. So from a Singapore base, they'll shoot a version for Japan or Korea, um, obviously Singapore, Indonesia, China usually as well. So I would love to launch in China, but that comes with a whole another bunch of um, problems. And obviously being an English-speaking base, Singapore is, is really easy as well. I shouldn't say easy, but... Yeah, much easier than, than um, going somewhere where we're going to need to localise in a different language. Yeah, cool. And so when you are kind of like looking at overseas markets, like what's the sort of plan? You sort of said that you kind of let the markets sort of lead where you kind yeah. of go next. But then do you have to kind of then jump in and be on the ground there finding, you know... Yeah, we do a lot of soft testing first. So um, looking for... So we'll, you know, um, soft test with advertising and see, well, what works? What sort of conversions are we getting? Is this going to be a viable opportunity? We look for highly fragmented growth economies. So where there's highly fragmented creatives, um, but it's still a growth economy. So new people coming online, advertising still growing, online marketing still growing in those areas. So we do a lot of market analysis sort of before we would think about putting someone on the ground and make sure that it's going to be financially viable. Um, we do have relatively low cost to localise because we can grow both sides of our marketplace without a physical presence. Um, and then looking at how much a local presence will add value in that market, whether it's something that can't be managed from an external, either Australian or Singaporean head office. Yeah, exciting. Uh, and what's your personal... Because I, I read a... I think I kind of half read it because I think I got exhausted like halfway through. <laughs> it was like 24, 24 hours in the life of Taryn. Um can you talk yes. us through like what your day actually looks like and what you try to kind of prioritise throughout day? Yeah, yeah, it's tough. I um, I'm not great at prioritising, like fitting in some sort of balance. I'm not going to lie that I've got some sort of magic work like work life balance, and anyone should follow my words of wisdom. But I do get up early, but I've always sort of been an early riser. So I get up at five thirty, get to the gym, train. So that's sort of what I don't check my emails before I go to the gym. I try not to check social media or anything like that. It's that one kind of blissful part of your day before everything kind of happens and it unloads on you. So try and get in, train most mornings. Um, I'm usually at the office by sort of 7, 7.30. Um, I generally have a call with anyone that we've got internationally, so Singapore or um, New York, and get that out of the way. Try and touch base with my Melbourne team early as well, so 8, 8.30, depending on what time they hit their desks. Um, and then we have team stand-up with all of the dev team. Um, so we'll have that every morning for 15 minutes. Is there any blockers? It's really important just to keep everyone aligned and keep the product moving. So any blockers? What's everyone working on today? What did you get done yesterday? Anyone need anything from anyone? We'll have a once a week full scrum where we'll sit down and do a sprint planning, whether we're building in one or two week sprints, depending on what the product roadmap is. And then I'll generally try and crack out a few hours worth of emails. I generally have quite a few face-to-face -face meetings as well. So I'll be in the car, on the road, returning calls, um, and then quite a bit of media stuff, um, writing PR articles or opinion pieces and um, checking in with teams throughout the day. Obviously, some high-value clients that I personally sort of service and, and look after. And then I spend a lot of time on, on product development, so sort of specking new features and spending time sitting down with our product manager and going, okay, well, what, what's the value add? How much um, improvement is this going to bring to both sides of the marketplace? How much time is it going to take for our dev team to 
actually implement this properly? What are the risks? You know, what are the opportunities here? Map that sort of out, spec the features. Um, they'll build them usually in Envision or in Sketch for me. And then um, once that's all sort of approved, it'll go into the backlog ready for building. And then I generally have after work events as well. Um, so I sort of sneak out of the office at about 7.30 and try and head to an event, um, do the, the networking piece, catch up with clients and, um, yeah, and obviously heavily involved in the startup community. So try and catch up with those people and um, generally try and sneak in a little bit of work before I get into bed and then get up and do it all again. But I love it. I mean, I think we're all the same, aren't we? Like we're a little bit crazy breed entrepreneurs and founders and I wouldn't have it any other way. But it's probably not healthy forever. I understand that. <laughs> um, and what about weekends? Weekend. Okay, so I do. I love a long walk. I'm a big fan of the long walk, which I'll um, usually rope into a girlfriend or um, or sometimes my publicist for a bit, a bit of a long a long weekend walk. She can't escape me. So. Um, so, so that's basically a kind, walk kind of yeah, it's, kind yeah, of yeah, 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 a little bit of a or my girlfriend where it's like a venting, you know, <laughs> sessions, kind of Taryn counselling. Um, so I, I love to do Potts Point to the Opera House and then down through Chinatown and then back up through Surrey Hills or Bondi to Coogee or something like that. It's a really beautiful walk. So it's, I try. I don't get much out of the office time during the week, so I try and get some vitamin D on my skin and, and get out. Um, I do work generally on a Saturday. Um, there's certain, you would know this, there's certain projects that you just never get to, you know, working day that really requires some headspace and thinking anything that's got a especially for product like a lot of logic attached to it where like I need to work out where credit card charges would be triggered or um, long form you know op-ed pieces I try and block out time on Saturday to do and then kind of like big picture dream thinking strategy I try and do on a Saturday yeah and then try and catch up with friends and family um, I squeeze that in and I try not to work Sundays so yeah that's my I'm trying to get back into doing yin yoga and like chill out time so that's Sunday for me at the moment yeah so nice I'm trying to get that and done. I mean the right fits a pro- like a platform that kind of works a lot with influencers mm-hmm. but I feel in some ways you're almost like an influencer representative of like the startup <laughs> we're starting a union it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's an um, so uh, you know, I, th- I think a lot of people kind of go like, "Wow, Taryn has such a great profile." Mm-hmm. How did is that something you work on actively? Like, is that you know kind of no, I or is it something that's naturally? Yeah, it's kind of naturally evolved. But someone had told me probably like three years ago, they were like, "You have a personal brand, whether or not you choose to control it." And they're like, irrespective of who you are as a human, like what sort of job you have, or how many followers you have, or you know what you do. Every one of us has a personal brand and that's what people buy into every time they connect with you, whether it's on social or whether it's like in the workplace or at an event, they're really buying into like your personal values and your ethos and what you stand for and what you present. And so you either control that and get to decide how that's portrayed publicly or it's decided by the public. And I was like, that's a really interesting point. And that's kind of when I made a conscious decision to, I guess, be more in control of my personal brand and and the things that I aligned myself with, whether that's like charities or organisations or, you know, board seats that I take through to my social presence and, and the things that I feel comfortable depicting on that or talking about my personal life and things like that. So I think it's, um, it's not something that I sat down and I guess came up with like a really constructive contrived strategy of like this is going to be brand Taryn Williams but I think it's one of those things that if you don't control it can it's also really easy now for um 
you know, people who are asking me to speak at a particular event or if they're asking me to be a brand ambassador for something to really clearly understand what my values are and it's pretty consistent so they can really easily see is this going to align with what she's all about or is this going to be completely jarring for her and her audience and what she believes in so it kind of cuts down a lot of that as well and I think it just resonates with people a lot more that it's authentic and I think that they understand like the the trials and tribulations of of my entrepreneurial journey and and growing a business and I think that's really important yeah cool because because how much time and thought goes into kind of say you managing your social Mm. profiles um I wouldn't say a lot of time and thought um I definitely think it's really important that it's pretty um organic and real that I document what I'm doing um that said I I have done posts in the past where I've been like I've had fucking tough day you know I'm stuck at the office blah 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 and the outcry oh my god are you okay and I'm like gosh it's just a normal day in the life so um, no and I do try and keep it really real and I think that's really important especially you know on podcasts like this that people tell the story of how difficult it is and that it is isolating and it's fucking long days like you work like a lot and you work on the weekends and if you want to do this it comes with inherent sacrifice and you need to decide whether that's for you or not so um, I don't sit down and have like a content calendar of things that I need to post or anything like that um, or things that I want to particularly talk about but definitely when it comes to charity involvement like I really try to make sure that I have charities that really resonate with me and that that I can use any of my sort of social for good. Um, so I'll definitely have those sort of key events throughout the year that we get behind both in both of my companies and then personally um, that we sort of throw our weight behind, um, which is really, really important. And then just trying to highlight, I guess, all of the challenges that we go through, both as, as females on and then as entrepreneurs and, and just talking about that publicly and I think giving people a voice to sort of, I guess, say what they're going through or what they're thinking about or what they're loving, what they're not loving, all of those things. Yeah, cool. So just to get into the grit of it, like mm. what, what is, say, the toughest moment that you've had through your right fit process? Oh, my God, there's been so many. Um, God, having our very first amazing developer get headhunted um, from his ex-boss was pretty heartbreaking. You know, it was our first, like we just, ju- oh, probably just launched the product. It was maybe three or four months old and I was devastated because you know you're just so attached to that person there's so much ingrained knowledge um but the opportunity you know it was like a paycheck of like double what we were paying so I was like how I can't you know go please blessings and that's definitely really really hard um finding the right people because you as you would know like you you scale so quickly so the people that you need today are going to be you know the marketing manager that you need today is not the marketing manager that you need in six months time things change so quickly in startup life so you're like great you're great for now but then does your marketing manager know that (laughs) (laughs) yeah i hope they're not listening yeah (laughs) you're all fired in six months no so it's um it's really hard because you're kind of trying to hire ahead of the curve someone who's going to be great maybe in three or four months time because you know you're growing so fast you know you've got international expansion happening and so that's really really challenging um what else I think probably just that it is so isolating. You really do have to throw yourself into it 110%. And people either understand that and totally get behind you. My family is incredibly supportive and um, really have my back. And so, you know, most of my friends. Other people can find it like super, I guess, um, I don't know, not that it's a a personal affront on them how much you work. But, you know, if I'm in the office again on a Saturday or whatever, they're kind of jarring, I guess, for them. So... Yeah, that's that's definitely challenging, I guess, trying to find some sort of balance or semblance of a life in there whilst you're growing something. Yeah, cool. Um, you mentioned 
it's not something that I usually like to delve into because I kind mm. of feel like founders are founders. But you mentioned kind of being a female founder. Yeah. Um, is that like has that have you felt any challenges? Because I've seen some other female founders kind of talk about oh you know investors you know kind of expected this and they don't you know mm. they, there's kind of like this thing that males just don't see sometimes yeah. through that process is that anything that you've experienced no I've been really I have I did experience it once when we were fundraising um, with a so obviously an investor that we did not go with um, but with a strategic investor and it was the first time it had happened to me in my career. So yeah, wow. I've obviously been really isolated. I've never had a boss. I've never had like a corporate job. So there's been no glass ceiling. I've never been overlooked for a promotion for being a female. So I guess I've kind of blissfully like been completely unaware of how hard it could be for a female in those kind of spaces. And I guess my industry is pretty female dominated as well. So I'd probably been super isolated from that. So yeah, that was the only instance where I'd felt really uncomfortable um, and immediately came out of that meeting and called um, the person that the, the referral had come from and my mentor and was like quite taken aback by it. And um, thankfully, Airtree that we partner with are super fantastic in making sure that we as, as females are, are really, really supported and sheltered in any way from that kind of behaviour. So if that ever happens in, you know, on their watch or, you know, even with a supplier or something like that, um, they will be the first ones to, to jump in and call that out. And um, and as would all of my sort of advisory board as well. So I think it's, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, I think, um, you know, obviously in our space, there are a lot of people who are happy and, and willing to support female founders and, you know, really trying to balance that gender equality, which is really fantastic. And I don't think it's tokenism. Um, and then there is, you know, on the flip side, women who have had really, really bad experiences. And I think that's really shocking that it still happens and I hope that all of this sort of media publicity over the last couple of months of everything that's happened at, at Uber and, and Google will really help change that. Yeah, cool. So with the international expansion, mm. does that bring with it the need to raise more money from like potentially international investors and things like that? Is that something that you're starting to look at at the moment? Yeah, no, we've actually just closed around, but we oh, cool. will um, do another, obviously, probably not in the short term, but probably in the next 18 months um, as we open more offices internationally and, and develop. We've got quite a hefty product roadmap left to go, so there'll definitely be future rounds on the table. Um, yeah, so it's, I think the second time round, you kind of, at least you have an idea of what to expect and um, sort of know the process and know how long it's going to take and I was pretty clear in carving out my you know this sort of a three month period where it's almost a full time job of juggling that so you kind of carve out some time in your calendar and know that it's going to be all consuming and that you want to give it all of your attention because you want the sort of best outcome for both parties so yeah, nice. And where do you go to for inspiration outside of, say, your mentor mm. and other kind of connections? I read a lot. I love reading autobiographies. I only read nonfiction. I love reading autobiographies and biographies, um, especially like other founders who have done it well or, you know, inspiring business people. I'm reading um, Jan Wenner from Rolling Stone at the moment, oh, nice. like just people who have had really interesting backgrounds. And I think it kind of it's nice to know that you're not alone. Other people have been through this journey, had the challenges and the, the ups and downs because it is, um, I think it's one of those really polarising things. Like you, it's not an easy journey and not everyone can do it. So, yeah, I absolutely love that. Um, I read some blog. I love Medium as well. I read a lot of blogs, um, follow some really interesting people on Twitter. It's a big, big source of, um, of inspiration and there's always, yeah, people talking about really interesting things that kind of gets you out of the day-to-day minutiae of what you're doing and, and thinking, I guess, a little bit more broadly about 
what's going on in the world. And then documentaries. I'm such a doco nerd. I love watching. Like, I just watched one on the plane yesterday about um, robotics, really humanoid robotics. If anyone's flying Qantas soon, you should watch it. It's really good. <laughs> um, yeah, so things like that that I think just try and keep your p- perspective a little bit fresh and, yeah. Yeah, nice. Um, are there any other books you'd recommend? Like you sort of mentioned the Yarn Wonder One. Yeah. Um, oh, my favorite book. I read a lot of Hunter S. Thompson. I loved Hell's Angels by Hunter S. Thompson. Um, and Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail is an amazing book um, for anyone that hasn't read it. The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz is like the number one go-to that any aspiring entrepreneur or founder should read. It's just pretty pretty uh, cold, hard truth about what you're about to get into. So I definitely recommend those. There's other great like entrepreneurial books like The Lean Startup and and all of the sort of standard readings. But I try and keep it. Otherwise, you go. I don't know if I read before bed. So if you read before bed, then you're like sitting there thinking about like your Jira backlog and all the stuff that you need to do. So try try and keep it not too businessy. Yeah, nice. And um, so what's the kind of biggest game changer for you that you've kind of implemented at you know either personally. Mm in kind of your role as, you know, leading the right fit or wink models um, or as a business that's really kind of accelerated kind of growth? Oh, I mean, there's no probably specific one thing, but I think tools internally are like, especially with people based internationally, communication tools. And I think we sort of lame sat down and like mapped out what each one was allowed to be used for so slack is like a game changer and i totally love so like slack is used for x things you're only allowed to email if it's like these things external sources with attachments or whatever um when we use whatsapp when we use text message you know so going through those um was just streamlined so much of our communication and and lost correspondence and people saying i don't think i got that so that really helped. Um, project management tools, like so, we use Trello for project management and mapping out. Each person has their own Trello board, and you know, so you can really. For me, I'm quite visual, so I need to see okay, how much have I got on this week? What status is everything at? Um, so that really helped, and I obviously just love Jira and um, building out a clear product roadmap and you know, being able to see okay, what's in this week's sprint? What's going to get done in a particular period of time? And and how much am I going to move the needle if I can get all of these features released? I think keeps everyone motivated as well because it's nice to get to the end of, you know, a week or a fortnight when you close a sprint and go, yeah, we just, like, got all that done. That's awesome. We're kicking big goals. So. Yeah, nice. And what is your advice to kind of up-and-coming, like, say to someone who has a side hustle but they want to make it their full-time yeah. gig? yeah. I think really deeply understand the metrics of your business. And I think it's super hard. Um, Like it's not, it's not the fun part. It's not like the going and getting your logo designed or like building your website. It's like the really like kind of boring, like sitting down, mapping out a financial model and really understanding, is this business going to be financially viable? How much money am I going to need to get it to point A? And what do I want the journey to be? Like, is it, yeah, just a, a, I don't know, a business that you're going to sell stuff at the local markets or is it like a, you know, a global business that you see being at X valuation in the next three years? Because they're going to have very different needs and requirements. And do you want to go through that process? Do you want to manage a big team? Do you want to, you know, and I think making sure that personally you're comfortable with what that looks like. And then secondly, that what you're trying to achieve is financially viable and that you're not spending a dollar to make 90 cents because I think you know you do see that a lot and you know that's not necessarily bad in the initial growth phase but making sure it's going to be financially viable long term 
Yeah, cool. Are there any tools or templates or sources that you went to to kind of help to formulate those type of things? No, but I would definitely get um, an external CFO. I mean, we just made ours and spent you know, weeks cracking the back of it and, and working on it. And it's not one of those things that you, like, put in the bottom drawer and then, like, never look at again. You know, it's like a constantly evolving beast with different scenarios. And it can get a little bit overbaked and complicated, but definitely get an external CFO or expert. I'm all about, like, outsourcing anything that doesn't play to your strengths. So getting that, like, get an amazing bookkeeper, an amazing CFO, an amazing accountant, an amazing lawyer. Get all of these people. In today's, you know, economy, you can just go out and get an external CFO for, you know, a one-off project off Expert 360 or wherever and be like, great, I've got, or CTO or whatever you need. Like this, it's not like you have to hire them full-time on a 150 grand a year salary. You can just go and get these people in, get them to come and sit and do, um, you know, a, a business analysis with you and sit down and help you understand, okay, well, this is what it might look like and these are the key drivers and this is what, where you're going to be in three, six, 12 months if you keep doing X, Y, and Z. Um, yeah, so I think just get an expert to come in and help, and and depending on you know what, or same you know if it's if it's a tech problem, get someone in who can give you some advice on the overall system architecture, and and yeah, so you're not making those tough bad decisions that you have to take back later. Yeah, cool, awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Taryn. Oh, we really thank really you. appreciate it. Um, if people want to connect with you or the Right Fit, I'm on Instagram. It's just at Taryn Williams. Um, the Right Fit is just at the Right dot Fit. Um, our website is the Right dot Fit no.coms, no.au's. That is the most commonly asked question. Um, or you can find me on LinkedIn. Nice. Has that has that posed any challenges, the, yeah. the, the different domain <laughs> thing? Because, I mean... Yes, yeah. It's amazing. So we spent months trying to decide on a new name for the business and for for months it was just Nuco because no one could come up with a company name that really kind of personified what the business was all about. And... Um, Finally, we came up with the right fit and obviously couldn't get .com, .au, blah, blah, blah. So we were, Did you try to buy it? Yeah, yeah. And they were just like crazy expensive. Um, and But we could get the right .fit and I didn't even know that .fits were a thing, you know? <laughs> so I was like, that's so awesome. And then the number of people who are like super tech savvy that will be like, I emailed you the right .fit.com.au and I'm like, oh, just .fit. And they're like, Net. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> so, yes, it, do, it does pose some challenges. Yeah. Um, but hopefully as people get more and more used to sort of end, different ending domain names, they'll get used to it. Yeah, I think it'll be – it's it's a huge trend for the next <laughs> Were you? Years, did you have it with uh, .tv? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we, we don't own pedestrian.com. Um, we have tried to buy it a few times, but yeah. I think it's – yeah, it's a tough one. Um, but now – but the funny thing is now more people Google – pedestrian TV, like, that's yeah. become part of the oh, branding. So I feel like yeah. we'd actually, you know, like, that gets more Google searches than people just typing in pedestrian. So, Problem but solved. you still get, yeah. whenever you tell, tell people what you do, it's always, oh, you know, we run a business called pedestrian.tv and they're like, oh, so you're on television. It's just always, <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> Ah, oh, the challenges. Indeed. Yeah, cool. Well, thank you again, Taryn. Thank Thanks you for being for so generous me. with your time. And, um, yeah, no doubt, you know, hopefully uh, for any talented creatives out there, you know, get jump on the right pitch. And um, any clients, yep, especially. exactly. Definitely get, get in touch. Up. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> awesome. Thanks again. Thanks so much. See ya. That's it for another episode of Founders University. This episode was brought to you by Squarespace. Hop onto squarespace.com now, buy a domain, and set up a website with one of their beautifully designed templates. Don't forget to use the offer code PTV to get 10% off. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate us five stars, and forward a link to a friend. Stay tuned for another episode of Founders University coming to your headphones and speakers in a fortnight.